Section five of Europe and Elsewhere by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter four. O'Shaw, part two. Three. The Shaw as a social star. London, June twenty first, eighteen seventy three. After delivering the Shaw at the gates of that unsightly pile of dreary grandeur known as Buckingham Palace, I cast all responsibility for him aside, for the time being, and experienced a sense of relief, and, likewise, an honest pride in my success, such as no man can feel who has not had a shaw at nurse, so to speak, for three days. It is said by those who ought to know that when Buckingham Palace was being fitted up as a home for the shah one of the chief rooms was adorned with a rich carpet which had been designed and manufactured especially to charm the eye of his majesty the story goes on to say that a couple of the persian suite came here a week ago to see that all things were in readiness and nothing overlooked and that when they reached that particular room and glanced at the lovely combination of green figures and white ones in that carpet, they gathered their robes carefully up about their knees and then went elaborately tiptoeing about the floor with the aspect and anxiety of a couple of cats hunting for dry ground in a wet country and they stepped only on the white figures, and almost fainted whenever they came near touching a green one. It is said that the explanation is that these visiting Persians are all Mohammedans, and green being a color sacred to the descendants of the Prophet, and none of these people being so descended, it would be dreadful profanation for them to defile the holy color with their feet, and the general result of it all was that carpet had to be taken up and is a dead loss. Man is a singular sort of human being, after all, and his religion does not always adorn him. Now, our religion is the right one, and has fewer odd and striking features than any other, and yet my ancestors used to roast Catholics and witches and warm their hands by the fire, but they would be blanched with horror at the bare thought of breaking the Sabbath, and here is a Persian monarch who never sees any impropriety in chopping a subject's head off for the mere misdemeanor of calling him too early for breakfast, and yet would be consumed with pious remorse if unheeding foot were to chance to step upon anything so green as you or I, my reader. Oriental peoples say that women have no souls to save, and, almost without my memory, Many American Protestants said the same of babies. 
I thought there was a wide gulf between the Persians and ourselves, but I begin to feel that they are really our brothers after all. After a day's rest, the Shah went to Windsor Castle and called on the Queen. What that suggests to the reader's mind is this, that the Shah took a hand satchel and an umbrella, called a cab, and said he wanted to go to the Paddington Station, that when he arrived there the driver charged him sixpence too much, and he paid it rather than have trouble, that he tried now to buy a ticket, and was answered by a ticket-seller as surly as a hotel clerk that he was not selling tickets for that train yet, that he finally got his ticket, and was beguiled of his satchel by a railway porter at once, who put it into a first-class carriage and got a sixpence, which the company forbids him to receive, that presently when the guard, or conductor, of the train came along, the Shah slipped a shilling into his hand and said he wanted to smoke, and straightway the guard signified that it was all right, that when the Shah arrived at Windsor Castle he rang the bell, and when the girl came to the door asked her if the Queen was at home, and she left him standing in the hall and went to see that by and by she returned and said would he please sit down in the front room and mrs guelph would be down directly that he hung his hat on the hat-rack stood his umbrella up in the corner entered the front room and sat down on a hair-cloth chair that he waited and waited and got tired that he got up and examined the old piano the depressing lithographs on the walls, and the album of photographs of faded country relatives on the center table, and was just about to fall back on the family Bible, when the queen entered briskly and begged him to sit down and apologized for keeping him waiting. But she had just got a new girl, and everything was upside down and so forth and so on. But how are the family, and when did he arrive, and how long should he stay, and why didn't he bring his wife? I knew that that was the picture which would spring up in the American reader's mind when it was said the Shah went to visit the Queen, because that was the picture which the announcement suggested to my own mind. But it was far from the facts, very far. Nothing could be farther. In truth, these people made as much of a to-do over a mere friendly call as anybody else would over a conflagration. There were special railway trains for the occasion. There was a general muster of princes and dukes to go along, each one occupying room forty. There were regiments of cavalry to clear the way. Railway stations were turned into flower gardens, sheltered with flags and all manner of gaudy splendor. 
there were multitudes of people to look on over the heads of interminable ranks of policemen standing shoulder to shoulder and facing front there was braying of music and booming of cannon all that fuss in sober truth over a mere off-hand friendly call imagine what it would have been if he had brought another shirt and was going to stay a month at the guildhall truly i am like to suffocate with astonishment at the things that are going on around me here it is all odd it is all queer enough i can tell you but last night's work transcends anything i ever heard of in the way of well how shall i express it how can i word it i find it awkward to get at it but to say it in a word and it is a true one too as hundreds and hundreds of people will testify last night the corporation of the city of london with a simplicity and ignorance which almost rise to sublimity actually gave a ball to a shah who does not dance if i would allow myself to laugh at a cruel mistake this would start me it is the oddest thing that has happened since i have had charge of the shah there is some excuse for it in the fact that the aldermen of london are simply great and opulent merchants and cannot be expected to know much about the ways of high life but then they could have asked some of us who have been with the shah the ball was a marvel in its way the historical guildhall was a scene of great magnificence there was a high dais at one end on which were three state chairs under a sumptuous canopy upon the middle one sat the shah who was almost a chicago conflagration of precious stones and gold bullion lace among other gems upon his breast were a number of emeralds of marvelous size and from a loop hung an historical diamond of great size and wonderful beauty on the right of the shah sat the princess of wales and on his left the wife of the crown prince of russia grouped about the three stood a full jury of minor princes princesses and ambassadors hailing from many countries the two corrals the immense hall was divided in the middle by a red rope the shah's division was sacred to blue blood and there was breathing room there but the other corral was but a crush of struggling and perspiring humanity the place was brilliant with gas and was a rare spectacle in the matter of splendid costumes and rich coloring the lofty stained-glass windows pictured with celebrated episodes in the history of the ancient city were lighted from the outside and one may imagine the beauty of the effect the great giants gog and magog whose origin and history curiously enough are unknown even to tradition looked down from the lofty gallery but made no observation 
down the long sides of the hall with but brief spaces between were imposing groups of marble statuary and contrasted with the masses of life and color about them they made a picturesque effect the groups were statues in various attitudes of the duke of wellington i do not say this knowingly but only supposingly but i never have seen a statue in england yet that represented anybody but the duke of wellington and as for the streets and terraces and courts and squares that are named after him or after selections from his seven hundred and ninety-seven titles they are simply beyond the grasp of arithmetic this reminds me that having named everything after wellington that there was left to name in england even down to wellington boots our british brothers still unsatisfied still oppressed with adulation blandly crossed over and named our californian big trees wellington and put it in latin at that they did that calmly ignoring the fact that we the discoverers and owners of the trees had long ago named them after a larger man however if the ghost of wellington enjoys such a proceeding possibly the ghost of washington will not greatly trouble itself about the matter but what really disturbs me is that while wellington is justly still in fashion here washington is fading out of the fashion with us it is not a good sign the idols we have raised in his stead are not to our honor some little dancing was done in the sacred corral in front of the shah by grandees belonging mainly to grace of god families but he himself never agitated a foot the several thousand commoner people on the other side of the rope could not dance any more than sardines in a box chances to view the guildall spectacle were so hungered for that people offered five pounds for the privilege of standing three minutes in the musicians gallery and were refused i cannot convey to you an idea of the inordinate desire which prevails here to see the shah better than by remarking that speculators who held four-seat opera boxes at covent garden theatre tonight were able to get two hundred and fifty dollars for them had all the seats been sold at auction the opera this evening would have produced not less than one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars in gold i am below the figures rather than above them the greatest house for money that america ever saw was gathered together upon the occasion of jenny lind's first concert at castle garden the seats were sold at auction and produced something over twenty thousand dollars i am by no means trying to describe the guildall affair of last night such a crush of titled swells 
such a bewildering array of jeweled uniforms and brilliant feminine costumes, such solemn and awful reception ceremonies in the library, such grim and stately imposing addresses and Persian replies, such imposing processional pageantry later on, such depressing dancing before the apathetic Shaw, such ornate tables and imperial good cheer at the banquet. It makes a body tired to merely think of trying to put all that on paper. Perhaps you, sir, will be good enough to imagine it, and thus save one who respects you and honors you five columns of solid writing. The Lunatic Asylum is blessed with a glimpse. As regards the momentous occasion of the opera this evening, I found myself in a grievous predicament for a Republican. The tickets were all sold long ago, so I must either go as a member of the royal family or not at all. After a good deal of reflection, it seemed best not to mix up with that class, lest a political significance might be put upon it. But a queer arrangement had been devised whereby I might have a glimpse of the show, and I took advantage of that. There is an immense barn-like glass house attached to the rear of the theater, and that was fitted up with seats, carpets, mirrors, gas, columns, flowers, garlands, and a meager row of shrubs strung down the sides on brackets to create an imposing forest effect, I suppose. The place would seat ten or twelve hundred people. All but a hundred paid a dollar and a quarter a seat. For what? To look at the Shaw three-quarters of a minute while he walked through to enter the theater. The remaining hundred paid eleven dollars a seat for the same privilege, with the added luxury of rushing on the stage and glancing at the opera audience for one single minute afterward while the chorus sung God Save the Queen. We are all gone mad, I do believe. Eleven hundred five-shilling lunatics and a hundred two-guinea maniacs. The Herald purchased a ticket and created me one of the latter, along with two or three more of the staff. Our cab was about number 17,342 in the string that worked its slow way through London and past the theater. The Shah was not to come till nine o'clock, and yet we had to be at the theater by half-past six, or we would not get into the glass house at all, they said. We were there on time, and seated in a small gallery which overlooked a very brilliantly dressed throng of people. Every seat was occupied. We sat there two hours and a half, gazing and melting. The wide, 
red-carpeted central aisle below offered good display-ground for officials in fine uniforms, and they made good use of it. Royalty arrives. By and by a band in showy uniform came in and stood opposite the entrance. At the end of a tedious interval of waiting, trumpets sounded outside. There was some shouting. The band played half of God Save the Queen, and then the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and a dozen gorgeous Persian officials entered. After a little, the young Prince Arthur came, in a blue uniform, with a whole broadside of gold and silver medals on his breast, for good behavior, punctuality, accurate spelling, penmanship, etc., I suppose, but I could not see the inscriptions. The band gave him some bars of God Save the Queen, too, while he stood under us talking, with altogether unroyal animation, with the Persians, the crowd of people staring hungrily at him the while, country cousins, maybe, who will go home and say, I was as close to him as I am to that chair this minute. Then came the Duke of Tech, and the Princess Mary, and the band God Save the Queen Them also. Now came the Prince of Wales and the Russian Tsarina, the royal anthem again, with an extra blast at the end of it. After them came a young, handsome, mighty giant in a showy uniform, his breast covered with glittering orders, and a general's chapeau with a flowing white plume in his hand, the heir to all the throne of all the Russias. The band greeted him with the Russian national anthem, and played it clear through, and they did right, for perhaps it is not risking too much to say that this is the only national air in existence that is really worthy of a great nation. And at last came the long-expected millennium himself, his imperial majesty the Shah, with the charming princess of Wales on his arm. He had all his jewels on, and his diamond shaving brush in his hat-front. He shone like a window with the westering sun on it. What the asylum saw. The small space below us was full now. It could accommodate no more royalty. The august procession filed down the aisle in double rank, the Shaw and the Princess of Wales in the lead, and cheers broke forth, and a waving of handkerchiefs as the princess passed all said this demonstration was meant for her. As the procession disappeared through the farther door, the hundred eleven-dollar maniacs rushed through a small aperture, then through an anteroom, and gathered in a flock on the stage, the chorus striking up god save the queen at the same moment we stood in a mighty band-box or a roman coliseum 
with a sea of faces stretching far away over the ground floor and above them rose five curving tiers of gaudy humanity the dizzy upper tier in the far distance rising sharply up against the roof like a flower garden trying to hold an earthquake down and not succeeding it was a magnificent spectacle and what with the roaring of the chorus the waving of handkerchiefs the cheering of the people the blazing gas and the awful splendor of the long file of royalty standing breast to breast in the royal box it was wonderfully exhilarating not to say exciting the chorus sang only three-quarters of a minute one stanza and down came the huge curtain and shut out the fairyland and then all those eleven-dollar people hunted their way out again a nation demented we are certainly gone mad we scarcely look at the young colossus who is to reign over seventy millions of people and the mightiest empire in extent which exists today we have no eyes but for this splendid barbarian who is lord over a few deserts and a modest ten million of ragamuffins a man who has never done anything to win our gratitude or excite our admiration except that he managed to starve a million of his subjects to death in twelve months if he had starved the rest i suppose we would set up a monument to him now the london theatres are almost absolutely empty these nights nobody goes hardly the managers are being ruined the streets for miles are crammed with people waiting whole long hours for a chance glimpse of the shah i never saw any man draw like this one is there any truth in the report that your bureaus are trying to get the shah to go over there and lecture he could get one hundred thousand dollars a night here and choose his own subject i know a showman who has got a pill that belonged to him and which for some reason he did not take that showman will not take any money for that pill he is going to travel with it and let me tell you he will get more engagements than he can fill in a year four mark twain hooks the persian out of the english channel london june twenty sixth eighteen seventy three i suppose i am the only member of the shah's family who is not wholly broken down and worn out and to tell the truth there is not much of me left if you have ever been limited to four days in paris or rome or jerusalem and been rushed by a guide you can form a vague far-away sort of conception of what the shah and the rest of us have endured during these late momentous days 
If this goes on, we may as well get ready for the imperial inquest. When I was called at five o'clock the other morning to go to Portsmouth, and remembered that the Shah's incessant movements had left me only three hours sleep that night, nothing but a sense of duty drove me forth. A cab could not be found, nor a carriage, in all London. I lost an hour and a half waiting and trying, then started on foot and lost my way. Consequently I missed one train by a good while, another one by three minutes, and then had more than half an hour to spare before another would go. Most people had had a similar experience, and there was comfort in that. We started at last, and were more than three hours going seventy-two miles. We stopped at no stations hardly, but we halted every fifteen minutes out in the woods and fields for no purpose that we could discover. Never was such an opportunity to look at scenery. There were five strangers in our car, or carriage, as the English call it, and by degrees their English reserve thawed out, and they passed around their sherry and sandwiches, and grew sociable. One of them had met the Russian general of police in St. Petersburg, and found him a queer old simple-hearted soldier, proud of his past, and devoted to his master, the present Tsar, and to the memory of his predecessor, Nicholas. The English gentleman gave an instance of the old man's simplicity which one would not expect in a chief of police. The general had been visiting London, and been greatly impressed by two things there, the admirable police discipline and the museum. It transpired that the museum he referred to was not that mighty collection of marvels known to all the world as the British Museum, but Madame Tussaud's waxworks show. And in this waxwork show he had seen a figure of the Emperor Nicholas, and did it please him? Yes, as to the likeness, for it was a good likeness and a commanding figure but mon dieu try to fancy it monsieur dressed in the uniform of a simple colonel of infantry the great nicholas of russia my august late master dressed in a colonel's uniform the old general could not abide that he went to the proprietor and remonstrated against this wanton indignity the proprietor was grieved, but it was the only Russian uniform he could get, and say no more, said the general, may I get you one? The proprietor would be most happy. The general lost not a moment. He wrote it at once to the Emperor Alexander, describing with anguish the degradation which the late great Nicholas was suffering day by day through his infamously closed waxen representative, and imploring his majesty to send suitable raiment for the imperial dummy. 
and also a letter to authenticate the raiment, and out of regard for the old servant and respect for his outraged feelings the emperor of all the Russias descended from his alpine altitude to send to the two-soul waxwork the general's uniform, worn last by his father, and to write with his own hand an authenticating letter to go with it. So the simple-hearted police chief was happy once more, and never once thought of charging the museum ten thousand dollars for these valuable additions to the show, which he might easily have done, and collected the money, too. How like our own chiefs of police this good soul is! Another of these English gentlemen told an anecdote which he said was old, but which I had not heard before. He said that one day St. Peter and the devil chanced to be thrown together, and found it pretty dull trying to pass the time. Finally they got to throwing dice for a lawyer. The devil threw sixes, then St. Peter threw sixes. The devil threw sixes again. St. Peter threw sixes again. The devil threw sixes once more. Then Peter threw sevens, and the devil said, Oh, come now, your honor, cheat fair. None of your playing miracles here. I thought there was a nice bit of humor in that suggestion to cheat fair. A small private nautical race. I am getting to Portsmouth about as fast in this letter as I did in that train. The right honorable, the mayor of Portsmouth, had had a steamer placed at his disposal by the Admiralty, and he had invited the Lord Mayor of London and other guests to go in her. This was the ship I was to sail in, and she was to leave her pier at 9 a.m. sharp. I arrived at that pier at ten minutes to eleven, exactly. There was one chance left, however. The ship had stopped for something and was floating at ease about a mile away. A rusty, decayed little two-oared skiff the size of a bathtub came floating by, with a fisherman and his wife and child in it. I entreated the man to come in and take me to the ship. Presently he consented and started toward me. I stood impatient and all ready to jump the moment he should get within thirty yards of me. He halted at the distance of thirty-five and said it would be a long pull did I think I could pay him two shillings for it, seeing it was a holiday? All this palaver, and I, in such a state of mind, I jumped aboard and told him to rush, which he did. At least he threw his whole heart into his little useless oars, and we moved off at the rate of a mile a week. This was solid misery. When we had gone a hundred and nine feet, and were gaining on the tenth, a long, trim, graceful man-of-war's boat came flying by, bound for the flagship. Without expecting even the courtesy of a response, 
I hailed and asked the coxswain to take me to the mayor's vessel. He said, Certainly, sir. Ease her, boys. I could not have been more astonished at anything in the world. I quickly gave my man his two shillings, and he started to pull me to the boat. Then there was a movement of discontent among the sailors, and they seemed about to move on. I thought, well, you are not such generous fellows after all as I took you to be, or so polite either. But just then the coxswain hailed and said, The boys don't mind the pull, and they're perfectly willing to take you, but they say they ain't willing to take the fisherman's job away from him. Now that was genuine manliness and right conduct. I shall always remember that honorable act. I told them the fisherman was already paid, and I was in their boat the next moment. Then ensued the real fun of the day, as far as I was personally concerned. The boys glanced over their shoulders to measure the distance, and then at the order to give way they bent to it and the boat sped through the water like an arrow. We passed all kinds of craft, and steadily shortened the distance that lay between us and the ship. Presently the coxswain said, No use. Her wheels have begun to turn over. Lively now, lively. Then we flew. We watched the ship's movement with a sharp interest and calculated our chances. Can you steer? said the coxswain. Can a duck swim? said I. Good. We'll make her yet. I took the helm, and he the stroke oar, and that one oar did appear to add a deal to that boat's speed. The ship was turning around to go out to sea, and she did seem to turn unnecessarily fast, too. But just as she was pointed right, and both her wheels began to go ahead, our boat's bow touched her companionway, and I was aboard. It was a handsome race and very exciting. If I could have had that dainty boat and those eight white-shirted blue-trousered sailors for the day, I would not have gone in any ship, but would have gone about in vast naval style and experienced the feelings of being an admiral. Old Historical Men of War Our ship sailed out through a narrow way, bordered by piers that swarmed with people, and likewise by prodigious men of war of the fashion of a hundred years ago. There were perhaps a dozen of the stately veterans, these relics of an historic past, and not looking aged and seedy either, but as bright and fresh as if they had been launched and painted yesterday. They were the noblest creatures to look upon, hulls of huge proportion and great length, four long tiers of cannon grinning from their tall sides vast sterns that towered into the air like the gable end of a church, graceful bows and figureheads, 
masts as trim and lofty as spires. Surely no spectacle could be so imposing as a sea-fight in the old times when such beautiful and such lordly ships as these ruled the seas. And how it must have stirred the heart of England when a fleet of them used to come sailing in from victory with ruined sides and tattered spars and sails, while bells and cannon pealed a welcome. One of the grandest of these veterans was the very one upon which deck Nelson himself fell in the moment of triumph. I suppose England would rather part with ten colonies than with that illustrious old ship. We passed along within thirty steps of her, and I was just trying to picture in my mind the tremendous scenes that had transpired upon her deck upon that day, the proudest in England's naval history, when the venerable craft, stirred by the boom of saluting cannon, perhaps, woke up out of her long sleep, and began to vomit smoke and thunder herself, and then she looked her own natural self again, and no doubt the spirit of Nelson was near. Still it would have been pleasanter to be on her decks than in front of her guns, for as the white volumes of smoke burst in our faces, one could not help feeling that a ball might by accident have got mixed up with a blank cartridge, and might chip just enough of the upper end of a man to disfigure him for life. And, besides, the powder they use in cannon is in grains as large as billiard chalks, and it does not all explode. Suppose a few should enter one system. The crash and roar of these great guns was as unsettling a sound as I have ever heard at short range. I took off my hat and acknowledged the salute, of course, though it seemed to me that it would have been better manners if they had saluted the Lord Mayor inasmuch as he was on board. The World's Greatest Navy on View We went out to the Spithead and sailed up and down there for four hours through four long ranks of stately men of war. Formidable ironclads they were, the most insignificant of which would make a breakfast of a whole fleet of Nelson's prodigious ships, and still be hungry. The show was very fine, for there were forty-nine of the finest ironclads the world can show, and many gunboats besides. Indeed, here in its full strength was the finest navy in the world, and this the only time in history that just such a spectacle has been seen, and none who saw it that day is likely to live long enough to see its like again. The vessels were all dressed out with flags, and all about them frolicked a bewildering host of bannered yachts, steamers, and every imaginable sort of craft. It would be hard to contrive a gayer scene. One of the royal yachts came flying along presently, 
and put the Shah on board one of the ironclads, and then the yards of the whole fleet were manned simultaneously, and such another booming and bellowing of great guns ensued as I cannot possibly describe. Within two minutes the huge fleet was swallowed up in smoke, with angry red tongues of fire darting through it here and there. It was wonderful to look upon. Every time the devastation let off one of her thirty-five-ton guns, it seemed as if an entire London fog issued from her side, and the report was so long coming that if she were to shoot a man, he would be dead before he heard it, and would probably go around wondering through all eternity what it was that happened to him. I returned to London in a great hurry by a train that was in no way excited by it, but failed in the end, and blank. Object I had in view after all, which was to go to the grand concert at Albert Hall in honor of the Shah. I had a strong desire to see that building filled with people once. Albert Hall is one of the many monuments erected to the memory of the late Prince Albert. It is a huge and costly edifice, but the architectural design is old, not to say in some sense a plagiarism, for there is but little originality in putting a dome on a gasometer. It is said to seat thirteen thousand people, and surely that is a thing worth seeing, at least to a man who was not at the Boston Jubilee. But no tickets were to be had. Every seat was full, they said. It was no particular matter, but what made me mad was to come so extremely close and then miss. Indeed, I was madder than I can express, to think that if the architect had only planned the place to hold thirteen thousand and one, I could have got in. But after all, I was not the only person who had occasion to feel vexed. Colonel X, a noted man in America, bought a seat some days ago for ten dollars, and a little afterward met a knowing person who said the Shah would be physically worn out before that concert night and would not be there, and consequently nobody else. So the seat was immediately sold for five dollars. Then came another knowing one who said the Shah would unquestionably be at the concert. So the colonel went straight and bought his ticket back again. The temporary holder of it only charged him two hundred and fifty dollars for carrying it around for him during the interval. The colonel was at the concert, and took the Shah's head clerk for the Shah all the evening. Vexation could go no further than that. 5. Mark Twain gives the Royal Persian a send-off. London, June 30, 1873. For the present we are done with the Shah in London. He is gone to the country to be further 
impressed. After all, it would seem that he was more moved and more genuinely entertained by the military day at Windsor than by even the naval show at Portsmouth. It is not to be wondered at, since he is a good deal of a soldier himself, and not much of a sailor. It has been estimated that there were three hundred thousand people assembled at Windsor, some say five hundred thousand. That was a show in itself. The Queen of England was there, so was Windsor Castle, also an imposing array of cavalry, artillery, and infantry and the accessories to these several shows were the matchless rural charms of England, a vast expanse of greensward, walled in by venerable forest trees, and beyond them glimpses of hills clothed in summer vegetation. Upon such a theater a bloodless battle was fought, and an honorable victory won by trained soldiers who have not always been carpet knights, but whose banners bear the names of many historic fights. England is now practically done with the Shah. True, his engagement is not yet completed, for he is still billed to perform at one or two places, but curiosity is becoming sated, and he will hardly draw as good houses as heretofore. Whenever a star has to go to the provinces, it is a bad sign. The poor man is well-nigh worn out with hard work. The other day he was to have performed before the Duke of Buccleuch and was obliged to send an excuse. Since then he failed of his engagement at the Bank of England. He does not take rest even when he might. He has a telegraphic apparatus in his apartments in Buckingham Palace and it is said that he sits up late talking with his capital of Persia by telegraph. He is so fascinated with the wonderful contrivance that he cannot keep away from it. No doubt it is the only home-like thing the exile finds in the hard, practical West, for it is the next of kin to the enchanted carpets that figure in the romance and traditions of his own land, and which carry the wanderer whither he will about the earth, circumscribing the globe in the twinkling of an eye, propelled by only the force of an unspoken wish. Gossip about the Shah This must be a dreary, unsatisfactory country to him, where one's desires are thwarted at every turn. Last week he woke up at three in the morning and demanded of the vizier on watch by his bedside that the ballet dancers be summoned to dance before him. The vizier prostrated himself upon the floor and said, O king of kings, light of the world, source of human peace and contentment, the glory and admiration of the age, turn away thy sublime countenance, let not thy fateful frown wither thy slave, for behold, the dancers dwell wide asunder 
in the desert wastes of London, and not in many hours could they be gathered together. The Shah could not even speak he was so astounded with the novelty of giving a command that could not be obeyed. He sat still a moment, suffering, then wrote in his tablets these words, Mem. Upon arrival in Tehran, let the vizier have the coffin which has just been finished for the late general of the household troops. It will save time. He then got up and set his boots outside the door to be blacked, and went back to bed, calm and comfortable, making no more to do about giving away that costly coffin than I would about spending a couple of shillings. THE LESSON OF HIS JOURNEY If the mountains of money spent by civilized Europe in entertaining the Shah shall win him to adopt some of the mild and merciful ways that prevail in Christian realms, it will have been money well and wisely laid out. If he learns that a throne may rest as firmly upon the affection of a people as upon their fears, that charity and justice may go hand in hand without detriment to the authority of the sovereign, that an enlarged liberty granted to the subject need not impair the power of the monarch, if he learns these things, Persia will be the gainer by his journey, and the money which Europe has expended in entertaining him will have been profitably invested. That the Shah needs a hint or two in these directions is shown by the language of the following petition, which has just reached him from certain Parsees residing here and in India. The Petition 1. A heavy and oppressive poll tax called the Jusia is imposed upon the remnant of the ancient Zoroastrian race now residing in Persia. A hundred years ago, when the Zoroastrian population was 30,000 families, and comparatively well-to-do, the tax was only 250 tumans. Now, when there are scarcely 6,000 souls altogether, and stricken with poverty, they have to pay 800 tumans. In addition to the crushing effect of this tax, the government officials oppress these poor people in enforcing the tax. 2. A Parsee desirous of buying landed property is obliged to pay 20% on the value of the property as fee to the Kazi and other authorities. 3. When a Parsee dies, any member of his family, no matter however distant, who may have previously been converted to Mohammedism, claims and obtains the whole property of the deceased, to the exclusion of all the rightful heirs. In enforcing this claim, the convert is backed and supported by government functionaries. 4. When a Parsee returns to Persia from a foreign country, he is harassed with all sorts of exactions at the various places he has to pass through in Persia. 5. When any dispute arises, whether civil or criminal, between a Mohammedan and a Parsee, the officials invariably side with the former, and the testimony of one Mohammedan, no matter how false on its very face, 
receives more credit than that of a dozen or any number of Parsee witnesses. If a Mohammedan kills a Parsee, he is only fined about eight tumens, or four pounds sterling. But on the contrary, if a Parsee wounds or murders a Mohammedan, he is not only cut to pieces himself, but all his family and children are put to the sword, and sometimes all the Parsees living in the same street are harassed in a variety of ways. The Parsees are prevented from dressing themselves well and from riding a horse or donkey. No matter even if he were ill and obliged to ride, he is compelled to dismount in the presence of a Mohammedan rider and is forced to walk to the place of his destination. The Parsees are not allowed to trade in European articles, nor are they allowed to deal in domestic produce as grocers, dyers, or oilmen, tailors, dairymen, etc., on the ground that their touch would pollute the articles and supplies and make them unfit for the use of Mohammedans. 6. The Parsees are often insulted and abused in every way by the Mohammedans, and their children are stolen or forcibly taken away from them by the Mohammedans. These children are concealed in Mohammedan houses, their names are changed, and they are forced to become Mohammedans, and when they refuse to embrace the Mohammedan faith, they are maltreated in various ways. When a man is forcibly converted, his wife and family are also forced to join him as Mohammedans. The Mohammedans desecrate the sacred places of worship of the Zoroastrians and the places for the disposal of their dead. 7. In general the Parsees are heavily taxed in various ways and are subjected to great oppression. In consequence of such persecution the Parsi population of Persia has, during this century, considerably decreased and is now so small that it consists of a few thousand families only. It is possible that these persecutions are practiced on the Zoroastrian inhabitants of Persia without the knowledge of His Majesty the Shah. THE INGENIOUS BARON Reuter. It is whispered that the Shah's European trip was not suggested by the Shah himself, but by the noted telegraphic newsman Baron Reuter. People who pretend to know say that Reuter began life very poor, that he was an energetic spirit and improved such opportunities as fell in his way, that he learned several languages and finally became a European guide or courier and employed himself in conducting all sorts of foreigners through all sorts of countries and wearing them out with the usual frantic system of sightseeing. That was a good education for him. It also gave him an intimate knowledge of all the routes of travel and taught him how certain long ones might be shortened. By and by he got some carrier pigeons and established a news express which necessarily prospered since it furnished journals and commercial people with all matters of importance considerably in advance of the mails. When railways came into vogue, he obtained concessions which enlarged his facilities and still enabled him to defy competition. He was ready for the telegraph and seized that too, and now, for years, 
has stood in brackets at the head of the telegraphic column of all European journals. He became rich. He bought telegraph lines and built others, purchased a second-hand German baronetcy, and finally sold out his telegraphic property to his government for three millions of dollars, and was out of business for once. But he could not stay out. After building himself a sort of a palace, he looked around for fresh game, singled out the Shah of Persia, and went for him, as the historian Josephus phrases it. He got an enormous concession from him, and then conceived the admirable idea of exhibiting a Shah of Persia in the capitals of Europe, and thus advertising his concession before needful capitalists. It was a sublimer idea than any that any showman's brain has ever given birth to. No Shaw had ever voluntarily traveled in Europe before, but then no Shaw had ever fallen into the hands of a European guide before. THE FAT CONCESSION the baron's concession is a financial curiosity. It allows him the sole right to build railways in Persia for the next seventy years, also street railroads, gives all the land necessary, free of charge, for double tracks, and fifty or sixty yards on each side, all importations of material, etc., free of duty all the baron's exports free of duty also the baron may appropriate and work all mines except those of precious metals free of charge the shah to have fifteen per cent of the profits any private mine may be gobbled the persian word is akbamarish by the baron if it has not been worked during five years previously the baron has the exclusive privilege of making the most of all government forests, he giving the shah fifteen per cent of the profits from the wood sold. After a forest is removed, the baron is to be preferred before all other purchasers if he wants to buy the land. The baron alone may dig wells and construct canals, and he is to own all the land made productive by such works. The baron is empowered to raise thirty millions of dollars on the capital stock for working purposes, and the shah agrees to pay seven per cent interest on it. And Persia is wholly unencumbered with debt. The shah hands over to the baron the management of his customs for twenty years, and the baron engages to pay for this privilege one hundred thousand dollars a year more than the shah now receives, so the baron means to wake up that sleepy Persian commerce. After the fifth year the baron is to pay the shah an additional sixty per cent of the profits if his head is still a portion of his person, then. The baron is to have first preference in the establishment of a bank. The baron has preference in establishing gas, road, telegraph, mill, 
manufacturing, forge, pavement, and all such enterprises. The Shah is to have 20% of the profits arising from the railways. Finally, the Baron may sell out whenever he wants to. It is a good concession in its way. It seems to make the Shah say, Run Persia at my expense and give me a fifth of the profits. One's first impulse is to envy the Baron, but, after all, I do not know. Some day, if things do not go to suit the Shah, he may say, There is no head I admire so much as this Baron's. Bring it to me on a plate. Departure of the Imperial Circus We are all sorry to see the Shah leave us, and yet are glad on his account. We have had all the fun, and he all the fatigue. He would not have lasted much longer here. I am just here reminded that the only way whereby you may pronounce the Shah's title correctly is by taking a pinch of snuff. The result will be Shah. End of chapter four, O'Shah, part two. Read by John Greenman.